If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Something You Should Know, why the safest way to drive is the way a race car driver drives. Then, there's a lot of change going on in the world, and that can be scary, but also an opportunity. You can't debate a change that's happening in your life. You can't say, well, well, maybe this shouldn't happen. Because if it's happening, it's happening. So the, the thing that you can do is try to identify where it's going and what value you can derive from it. That's your competitive advantage, is trying to get there before other people do. Also, the amazing benefit of taking three deep breaths and the fight against cancer. It's a tough battle, but there is progress. For example, in the USA, the five-year survival rates for breast cancer have gone up from 75% to about 90%. And for prostate cancer, they've gone up to very nearly 100% now. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello there. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Have you ever been given the advice, or maybe you've given the advice to someone else, to breathe deeply? Well, it turns out that that simple act of taking three deep breaths can do wonders for you. Why? Well, deep breathing is the quickest way to experience the body's relaxation response. Under stress, we breathe very shallowly. It's part of the fight-or-flight response. Without being aware of it, we're actually acting as if it's a life-and-death emergency and we flood our system with stress hormones. When we breathe slowly and deeply, on purpose, 
we signal our body and our mind that it is okay to calm down. We bring greater oxygen to our brain and our body, and it slows our heart rate. Our muscles relax, at least a little, and it helps create patience, the ability to face our challenges with persistence, calmness, and acceptance. Go ahead, try it. Try it right now and notice how you feel. Take three deep, slow breaths. There. Feel better? And that is something you should know. You have to deal with change all the time. Because, well, because things change. No news there. In the last several years, though, it seems that a lot has changed. And ultimately, one could argue, it's how we deal with and manage change as it comes at us that determines how successful we are. This is something Jason Pfeiffer has taken a serious look at. Jason is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He's a startup advisor and host of the podcast, Build for Tomorrow. He's also author of the book, Build for Tomorrow. Hey, Jason, welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So when, when you look at all the change in front of us here, what is it that you find so interesting about it and makes change worth studying and paying attention to? The really interesting thing for me, as a guy who watches how change happens, this is a thing that I've been studying for years through Entrepreneur, as I have access to the world's greatest entrepreneurs, and also the podcast as I study history. But when the pandemic happened, I realized that we were in the middle of a very interesting, we were in the middle of a lot of things, but one of them was a very interesting experiment because you got to watch everybody go through the same change at the same time and then watch how they deviated and who did things differently and how did it impact what happened to their businesses or their lives. And that's when I came to this theory about change, which is that it happens in four phases because I was watching everybody do it. Number one is panic, then adaptation, then new normal, and then wouldn't go back. This moment where people say, I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. I saw people get there very quickly in the pandemic. I mean, almost immediately people pivoted, they, they reinvented themselves. And others, of course, it took, it took a very long time. And I, I wanted to know what it was that was enabling people to move through these four phases so efficiently, because I really do believe that on the other end of this process for everybody, there is a wouldn't go back moment waiting. But the question is, do you have enough faith in it that you can move quickly towards it? Well, I want to revisit those stages you just mentioned, but that first one, panic, I think everyone has felt that, some more than others, because you know some people seem to go with the flow better when change happens and others, well, they, they panic. We want to talk about panic. I think that the greatest challenge that we have is that people equate change with loss. So something new happens in their lives and they immediately say, well, uh, this, this thing that I was comfortable with, that I was familiar with, I no longer have access to that. And that feels like loss to me. And then because, of course, we want to know what's coming next, we extrapolate based on the information we think we have. So if we're saying, well, I'm losing something, then obviously the next thing that's going to happen is that because I've lost this, I'm going to lose that other thing. And then I'm going to lose that other thing. And I'm going to lose another thing. And you start to feel panic because you start to feel like you are really the foundation 
beneath you is crumbling. But of course, that's not what happens. What actually happens is that change, it does lead to loss. It can certainly lead to loss, but it also drives gain. It creates gain. And so while I'm not suggesting that we ignore loss or 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 diminish its importance, I think what we really need to do is focus on the gain because that is that is the only thing that we can actually work with. Right? We, we you can't debate a change that's happening in your life. You can't say, well, well, maybe this shouldn't happen because if it's happening, it's happening. So the the thing that you can do is try to identify where it's going and what value you can derive from it, and then try to move towards that. That's your competitive advantage is trying to get there before other people do. But it's hard to see the gain in anything if you're panicking. If you're in panic mode, it, it, that's not the, a good mode to be in when it's time to face change and make decisions. What I would recommend is that to start right now, whether you're going through a moment of change or not, you need to identify what I like to call the thing that does not change in times of change. Because I, I think we often, we identify too much with like the output of our work. We, we identify too much with the things that we're, we do. Uh, so that could be a particular role that we hold at a job, or it could be a thing that we make or sell or, or whatever. This isn't just for entrepreneurs. This is for you know anybody. You, you, you identify with the thing that you do, naturally so. But the problem is that when change comes along, and it impacts that thing that you do because what you do is easily changeable. It just is. It's like a flag flapping in the breeze, right? Just like the next day, the breeze could flow in a different direction and it's going to alter the way in which you interact with the world or the role that you occupy or something. If you identify with that, you are going to feel lost because you're, it's not just a matter of changing what you do. It's your entire identity. I remember when I was a newspaper reporter, in the, it was my first job out of college. And then I realized I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter anymore because I just didn't love the work. I didn't love the hours. One of the one of the things that kept me in a job that I was unhappy at for far too long was that I was a newspaper reporter. It was it was my identity, and you know I, I was afraid of losing that identity, even though I didn't really want to do the job anymore. So how do we fix this? Well, what I found is that uh, entrepreneurs, in particular, are really really good at identifying something about them that does not change in times of change. You can try to boil it down to a single sentence. Like strip away everything that you think you identify with. Just strip away your strip away your um, you know, your your tasks and your skills, the things that you would say you do if somebody asks what you do at a party. And instead get down to something that you can define in a single sentence as short as possible, in which every single word is not easily changed in which every single word is, word is something that lots of different things can revolve around. This is very abstract, so let me tell you for myself. I used to think of myself as a newspaper reporter, then I thought of myself as a magazine editor. Now I say this to my, I mean, I wouldn't say it to other people because it would sound weird and obnoxious, but this is what I tell myself. I say, I tell stories in my own voice. Uh, two important components there. I tell stories, so not newspapers, not magazines, not books, not podcasts, in my own voice. And so that, now I'm setting the terms for how I want to work. And, and I find that by having that, every time that there's a change or every time that I'm trying to consider something, consider whether I would pursue something new, I, I go back to, does this fulfill that core mission? And whenever I lose something, I mean, if, if we got off the call today and Entrepreneur Magazine has fired me, I sort of hope not, but it wouldn't impact my ability to tell stories in my own voice. This is the thing about us that does not change in times of change. And if we identify it, then we know that we have something that is valuable 
that carries forward even in uncertain times. It gives us something to hold on to. It gives us a point of direction to move towards. And that by itself is just so orienting that I think that it can give us, it, it can help us see what it looks like to move out of that panic. Well, but what you just said, like if Entrepreneur Magazine fired you tomorrow, well, you could still tell stories in your own voice, but not not as successfully as you could as the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. And so, yeah, you still have that thing, but you also need to be successful and make money and pay the bills. Well, sure, but I I actually would push back against that because... It def- depends on what your definition of success is, right? I think that we we make a mistake when we allow other people to define success for ourselves. So it's true that you say that if I lost the job at Entrepreneur, that I wouldn't be able to very easily reach as many people as I do right now. But here's another way of looking at it. I would now have the opportunity to build stronger relationships with a smaller audience, which could, in fact, be a lot more valuable. Yeah, I mean, I reach, I can reach millions of people with Entrepreneur, but I'll tell you something, that doesn't actually help me very much because that's Entrepreneur's audience and Entrepreneur owns that audience. If I'm on Entrepreneur's social media, which I am regularly, you know, a small number of those people are going to go follow me on my own personal social media. But for the most part, I'm contributing to the relationship that they have with at Entrepreneur on Instagram or whatever the case is. And that's good because it helps me earn my salary, but it doesn't actually enable me to build something that is ownable for me in the future that could have more of a long-term, ta- you know, long tail. So what if I define success differently? What if I don't define success as reaching the largest number of people by any means necessary, but rather start thinking, what if I actually just focus on a slower growth where I'm building more building stronger bonds through my content and other means with an audience of people who are going to pay me directly. Now, that's a different game, but I could certainly define success in a different way. And I think the same is true for anybody. You know, you could, you could, I was, I was just talking with an old friend of mine who was saying that um, she's in medicine and she uh, is, is really not she's not happy. She wants to leave her job, but she was telling me that the thing that's holding her there is is salary and education, right? She got educated for this particular thing and she makes a lot of money. And so she feels like she's in these kind of golden handcuffs. And that's true if, if, if you want to define success a certain way. But another way of defining success is that she has now earned uh, the ability to um, go try, you know, go try to build her own thing, and maybe it won't make her uh, as much money immediately, but it will. It will be something that is a is a, a a job and a life that she has crafted more herself, and that she can wake up every day a little more excited about. And maybe she makes less money, but maybe she is happier, and maybe that's success. We're talking about how you deal with change and how to find the opportunity when change happens. My guest is Jason Pfeiffer. He is editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and author of the book, Build for Tomorrow. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So, Jason, it seems that there are a lot of people who have skills that really don't transfer to something else, or at least those people believe and find it hard to see what that transfer would be. Where, where could they take these skills and go do something else? I really believe that we don't quite fully understand the, the reason that we're successful. I mean, I hear this all the time from people who have had success in some place and now they're thinking about starting over. And one of their greatest worries is that they just won't be able to repeat the success that they already had because they maybe it was good fortune or good luck or good timing, or they were good at this one thing. They only know this one thing. They've only been doing this thing for so long. And look, getting from there to where I'm about to tell you is, it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but what I have often found is that when people make major shifts, then when they look back upon it, what they realize is that there was something that they knew how to do that was more fundamental than the way that they had understood their skill set. And that enabled them to make this change because something about themselves was transferable. I mean, I, I, you know, I watch people all the time leave the media industry and, you know, I'm not talking about like powerful people with tons of money. I'm talking about people who are making 50 grand at a magazine or something and, um, and, and, and discover that, oh, actually their market value is, is pretty substantial elsewhere because what they're really, really good at is not writing a magazine article. What they're really good at is processing information and making it useful. And once you start to realize that that's your power and it's deeper down, you liberate yourself to start thinking differently about who you are and what kind of value you can provide to others. When it comes time, though, to go find that opportunity, it seems like there's been a lot of change in that. Like, like you know, there, there are a lot of people that aren't employees anymore, so it isn't like you go apply for a job. It's it, it, Everything seems to have changed. Yeah, sure has. And that's great opportunity, isn't it? I mean, it's scary if you are only willing to engage in old systems. But think about it this way. You know, the, the, the craziest thing about a massive change is that incumbents fall. Ways of doing things that seemed unchangeable suddenly change. I, I mean, you know, look at, for example, the kinds of conversations that we're having now about the future of work. They would blow the minds of anybody just alive in 2019. I mean, the number of conversations that I've had with people about the four-day work week, could you believe the four-day work week? Like companies are shifting over to a four-day work week. But when you think about it, you think, well, why Why the hell not? Why not? Because it's not like the five-day work week was some, it wasn't written down. It wasn't the 11th commandment chiseled into stone. It's only about 100 years old, the very idea of a five-day work week. So why not change it? What does it have for us? And the same is true you know, that you're describing for ways to connect and, and, and work with people. I mean, I have heard so many people who get jobs by connecting with others on social media, for example, because social media is a pretty amazing place where 
nope, you don't have to wait for anybody's permission to show that you are smart and valuable. Get onto LinkedIn and just start sharing knowledge, start engaging with other people. People will notice fast. This is actually more democratized than it was before. I think that's a wonderful thing. So, you know, you, you, it's like instead of being really focused on the loss of old systems, I would instead say, well, you now have an opportunity to be a part of a new system to to help not only define a new system, but to find the value in that new system before others do. So instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Rather, why don't we start to think, what do others need? What are others looking for? I have great talent. Who needs me? How can I go solve problems for other people? When we start to think about it like that, it, it turns out actually the opportunity is everywhere. Well, that's a very different and forward way of thinking that isn't what most people do, I think, when they when they feel their career, their skills, or their livelihood is threatened. You know, people tend to lament and, you know, they'll mourn the death of, you know, what, what's gone before rather than look ahead and... I mean, how many people, you're in the, in the publishing business and there's been yeah. a lot of disruption there. I mean, how many people in that business have lamented the death of the book business and the and the, the magazine business and the and the newspaper business and you know oh my there's, God. No, there's no money in it and then blah blah blah. Well that doesn't get you very far. No, it gets you nowhere. I don't I just don't know what the point of it is. People have those conversations all the time. And yeah, fine, sure. You could lament it all day, but but like also consider that the thing that you're lamenting was not around forever. This is not some disruption to the natural state of things. Right? I, you know, I, I, an example I like to use is, is CDs. You know, uh, musicians were like up in arms when CDs disappeared. But like, are you kidding me? Like, the, just the, the very idea that music was captured on a disc and sold as a product is actually a it's a very small amount of time. <laughs> I mean. There's a very small amount of time. First of all, for most of human history, you couldn't even record music. The only way you could listen to music is if somebody was playing an instrument in front of you. Then record music came along. Thomas Edison invented the phonograph in 1877, got popularized in like the 1890s. People were floored by it. Musicians hated it. They opposed it. They, they, they you know, they like. I mean, it was just it, it was wild. They like despised the thing because they saw it as replacing what they thought of as the natural and only music industry that was possible, which of course was live performances. And if you were a composer, you could also sell sheet music. And, uh, and, and instead what happened? Well, we, we moved into an era of, of, of radio and of records and then eventually tapes and CDs. And now we're in streaming and uh, it'll go on and on and on, right? Like the, the, the point of this is uh, you, you can't just think of a sort of singular, very brief moment in time as the way that things have to be. It's just the way that you happen to be introduced to it. And that, you know, it's fine. It works for a little bit, but it's not going to work forever. And so what would happen if instead you stopped thinking of your job as my job is to sell CDs and instead you start to think of your job as I entertain or I bring joy to people or, you know, I, I create uh, atmospheres, uh, you know that matter or whatever i don't know you, you know you define it for yourself but the point is that once you do that you liberate yourself from the thing that's most changeable and you drill down into something that you actually can control and continue to provide value for 
One of the problems, or one of the, the, real or not, is when people, even when you think that way, and you think, okay, I entertain people, so let me go do... When you go try to do something else, there is that sense of, you know, I don't even really know what I'm doing, and and what if this doesn't work? And and you just fill yourself full of doubt, as everyone does when they try something new, that it's really hard to overcome that and, and dive in head first. Sure. So here's something you can tell yourself. Ready? When you're starting to do something the the very first time, very first time, just tell yourself this. I cannot wait to do this the second time. (laughs) I cannot wait to do this the second time. Because I think we we often, we expect that doing something must be, we we must be good at it. We have to be good at it. If we're going to try something, we better be good at it. No, we don't. No, we don't. It's not possible. It's not possible to be good at something the first time that you do it, or the first many times that you do something. Um, uh, I mean, I you know, there's some some great just thinking about this. Ryan Reynolds, I interviewed him for the magazine a long time ago. He said, uh, in order to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. The, the point being that nobody is good at something to start. It's just the thing that is the difference maker is whether or not you can tolerate being bad for long enough to be good, because most people can't tolerate that. Um, Ira Glass, the creator of This American Life, very famously uh, talked. I see very famously because it's all over the internet. Um, he he went on this uh, this this wonderful little little tangent at one point uh, on, on a television station about how when you're new at something, particularly in the creative arena, but you know it could be anywhere, um, that there is a large gap between your tastes and your abilities. <laughs> Which is that you have good taste, right? If you want to get into, if you want to learn to play guitar. You you probably have good taste in 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 music. Really, you've listened to great artists. You know what great sounds like, but your abilities are not there. There's a gap between your taste and your abilities, and uh, and, and that's hard to know because you can listen to great music and then you can't produce great music. Uh, but the thing is that that's everybody. So really, the thing that you need to do is not be great because that is not possible, but rather instead, you need to be able to tolerate being bad. That is what is possible. And that is ultimately what's going to separate you from everyone else. Well, what you said at the beginning, I think, is really true that that so many of us, when faced with change, think of it as a loss, like with it, the change will cost us something. And and while it might, it, it, dwelling on that doesn't do much good. And, and so we need a new way to, to face change, to look at change and look for the opportunity. And I appreciate your viewpoint on this because it, it's very optimistic and, and I think gives people hope for the future. Jason Pfeiffer has been my guest. He is editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And the name of his book and the name of his podcast, Build for Tomorrow. And there's a link to the book and the podcast in the show notes. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. 
I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to imagine that you have not been affected by cancer at some point in your life, either personally or because a friend or relative has gotten it, perhaps even died from it. Cancer seems to touch all of us one way or another sooner or later. More and more, we hear stories of victory in the fight against cancer, but are we really winning the war? Are we going to cure cancer, make it obsolete? A few years ago, we had Robin Hesketh on as a guest. Robin is one of the world's leading experts on cancer. He's a member of the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Cambridge and has been working in the field of cancer biology for many years. He's published over 100 research papers and authored textbooks on the subject of cancer. His latest non-textbook book is called Understanding Cancer, and he is back with the very latest update on how the fight against cancer is going. Hey, Robin, welcome. Welcome back. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for inviting me. So we've been hearing for many, many years about the fight against cancer, and it does seem that there are some victories, but it also seems that a lot of people still get cancer. And what that means is that at the moment in the U.S., one in two men and one in three women will develop cancer in their lifetime. And the upshot of that will be about 1,700 deaths per day. It's the second most common cause of death after heart disease. And an implication of all of that, of course, is that it costs a lot of money to look after cancer patients. In the USA, it costs over $21 billion a year. And to try and put that in context, it's about a 30th of the total defense budget. And that's not counting cancer research, which the National Cancer Institute estimates will be uh, about $7 billion uh, this year. And of course, none of that uh, conveys the human cost, the emotional impact of cancer on families and friends is incalculable. And so what is cancer? I mean, I'm sure you could talk for hours about this, but just in, in a real brief way, how do you define what cancer is? It's a group of cells somewhere within an animal that are reproducing, that is, making more of themselves, either faster than they should or in a place where they have no business to be or at, a, at the wrong time in terms of the life of the animal. So put another way, these cells have lost control of their capacity to divide. And the result is that cells grow and divide to make more copies of themselves, paying no heed to normal controls. So that's a kind of unruly mass of cells, and that's what constitutes uh, a tumor. And so when people get cancer, sometimes 
the cause of it seems clear, smoking being an obvious example. But there are other times when people get cancer for seemingly no reason at all. It just comes out of the blue. Why, why is this so hard to get a handle on? Well, you're absolutely right. And perhaps at the outset, make, make what I think is a very important point that you've touched on. And that is that we can now estimate that at least 50% of cancers are what one might call self-inflicted. Uh, that's to say it's things that we do to ourselves and the lifestyle that we adopt that directly leads to cancer. And the extreme example of that would indeed be smoking. But it is, of course, a bit more complicated than that. And it's perhaps the other kind of like half of cancers that are the real worry where we don't have a very obvious cause. But the point about cancers in general is that they can start in pretty well any organ. And the reason for that is that the fundamental cause is the same for all cancers. It's this loss of control of the process of cell replication, cells making more of themselves in an uncontrolled sort of fashion. Now, 90% of cancers are what are called carcinomas. And that simply means that they occur in epithelial tissue and epithelial cells are the most abundant cells in the body. They line pretty well all the sort of cavities and organs and internal passageways, and they also uh, provide an outer coating for most of the organs as well. So that includes our skin, and it includes also lungs, bowel, prostate, breast, and so on. And sometimes these cells are actually dividing quite rapidly anyway as part of their normal lifestyle. So if something goes wrong with the cell division control mechanism, it's big trouble. Lately, I remember hearing something about how our, our gut, the, the bacteria in our gut can cause cancer. Can you talk about that? We now know that, for example, bowel cancer arises at least in part because of the microorganisms that live in our gut. So we're actually made up of rather more microbial cells, mostly bacteria in fact, uh, than uh, what you might call our own cells. And the vast majority of our bacterial uh, cells make their home in our gut, over 95% of them. And we now know that the balance between different types of bacteria in the gut can affect whether cancer develops or not. And we also know that obesity is a major risk factor for bowel cancer. And that comes about because of changes in the balance of these uh, bacterial species in our gut. And so one of the questions I think people often have is, and you talked about lung cancer a moment ago, that some people will smoke quite a bit and they don't get lung cancer and some other people will smoke the same amount and get lung cancer. Why, why the difference? It's because... Uh, the expression I quite often like to use to, to uh, describe this sort of phenomenon is that from conception to death, we're engaged in a game of genetic roulette. And what I mean by that is that uh, most people nowadays, thanks to uh, the increasing exposure of science and cancer uh, in the media, now know that 
cancers arise because of damage to our DNA. And what that means is that our DNA picks up what are called mutations. These mutations occur randomly throughout life. And that's the reason why cancers are predominantly diseases of old age. We need time to pick up the relevant hand of mutations to give us a particular cancer. And of course, we can give things a helping hand in that context by doing things like smoking. Of course, uh, most people have got an uncle or a granddad or somebody who smoked all his life and never shown any signs of lung cancer. And yet, we know that if we could ban smoking across the world, we would make a significant impact on the incidence of cancers. We drop them by at least 90% because at least 90% of lung cancers are caused by smoke inhalation. So how does our great-grandfather or whoever it is uh, manage to escape? Well, he's lucky. In the game of genetic roulette, um, he's smoked, so he's weighted things against himself. And yet somehow or other, against the odds, he's emerged without picking up the necessary mutations to give himself lung cancer. So it's really a game of chance, genetic roulette. So we call cancer cancer, but it does seem as if different kinds of cancer are very different from each other. You get skin cancer, you go to the dermatologist, they zap it and it's gone. You get pancreatic cancer and there's no more serious diagnosis, I suspect, than that. So why the difference? Why are some cancers so easily treated and others are so easily not? Yeah, that's pretty well right. Well, I think it, it's worth making a point here that progress of science uh, generally, in fact, and especially in the context of cancer, is slow. And particularly in, in terms of cancer treatment, it has been slow over actually centuries. But slow though it is, there have been successes. For example, in the USA, the five-year survival rates for all cancers from 1970 to 2013, I think, uh, is one measure, have gone up from 50% to just a little bit short of 70%. For breast cancer, over the same period of time, the five-year survival rates have gone up from 75% to about 90%. And for prostate cancer, they've gone up from just under 70% to, well, very nearly 100% now, perhaps we should say 99%. And the reason for that uh, has been in part an improvement in surgical techniques and also in the developments associated with radiotherapy so that it's now possible to uh, treat cancers with radiotherapy in a much more focused and directed manner than ever before. But most of all, these improvements have come about through developments in the field of chemotherapy. And chemotherapy simply means drugs that target cancer cells. For the ones that you mentioned that are the really big problems, pancreatic uh, tumours, as you say, have a dismal prognosis that hasn't altered much. It's about an 11% five-year survival rate. Lung cancers have gone from about 12 to 18% over the period that we were talking about just now. 
And although there are drugs that have been developed that can be effective against these cancers, I think the problem is the majority of these cancers are not discovered until they're at a relatively late stage of development. So I know there are screening tests for certain cancers, and I know you talk about how some of those screening tests, which are trying to detect cancer so you can treat it, but those screening tests themselves have some problems. So talk about one of them, and and I know mammography is one of them, so talk about that. So mammography is looking for breast cancers uh, normally by x-rays. There have been several very big reviews about mammography and its usefulness. And let me just give you a kind of example to illustrate what the problem is here. Because on the face of it, you would think, well, it's got to be a good idea. But in one huge study, they discovered that for every 2,000 women invited for screening over a period of 10 years, one of them will avoid dying of breast cancer, but 10 will be treated unnecessarily. And in addition to that, there will be false alarms for 200 women, one-tenth of those uh, subjected to mammographies, uh, that will be Uh, because their false alarms will subject the the patient to prolonged stress and anxiety. And the upshot of all of that is that the the two big Swiss and Danish studies suggested that we should give up on screening until we have better biomarkers. And needless to say, that caused an international furor, um, but it's tough to argue with their evidence. The situation for the moment in the USA remains that the Preventative Services Task Force recommends that women who are between 50 and 74 years old and at average risk for breast cancer, that is, they don't have a big family history of breast cancer, that they get a mammogram every two years or so. Um, But even that's a bit controversial. I think the Mayo Clinic recommends mammograms beginning earlier and continuing annually. But all of that does serve to illustrate just how difficult the problem of screening is. So given what you know about cancer, if someone has a feeling something's wrong, that they might have a symptom of cancer, or they, I don't know, had had a bad dream that they might have cancer. I mean, do you think if people think there might be a problem, they should go get it checked out? If anyone suspects anything on the basis of either uh, you're getting to the age where you begin to think about these things and you note that you have Uh, ancestors who were prone to prostate cancer, go and see a physician, ask him what the current state of play is in terms of tests for that cancer, and just see what is available. It may be that the answer's not much. It may be that it's a bit complicated. If it's pancreatic cancer, it may be that you have to do something like have a CT scan to give you any chance of picking something up. And then you have to take the decision as to whether you want to do something about that or not. And so the watchword is the earlier the better and don't be backward about going to see a physician. This idea of curing cancer, I mean, I've, I've heard that it's impossible because first of all, there are lots of different kinds of cancer and you treat them all differently. And, and but you can't cure cancer. That's that's an unrealistic goal, yes? Yes, I think it is. 
So the problem with cancer is that it arises because of the accumulation of mutations. And what that sort of implies, if you think about it, is that it's actually a kind of shifting target. So these mutations are coming and sometimes even going all the time. So it, it's not like um, the, the, something that you might, for example, think of having a, a general cancer vaccine for. Vaccines work against diseases that are caused by a single event, an infection of some sort, but they won't work on mutation-driven cancers. Is there any general advice people can follow other than the usual, you know, live a healthy lifestyle, don't smoke, because smoking obviously is a, is a cause of lung cancer. But because there are so many different cancers, is there some general anti-cancer advice that you can give? Taking smoking as the first example, smoking has been accepted, I think, in the, in the Western world as being the major cause of lung cancer from, uh, well, back in the 1950s when um, Richard Doll and Richard Pito produced a, a very famous paper. But actually, the association between smoking and lung cancer goes back further than that. There was a, a, a very clever guy called Fra um, uh, Fritz Lickint, who worked in Germany in the 1930s. And he spotted the link between smoking and cancer and said, don't do it. And he also worked out that uh, what we now call passive smoking um, uh, it is a, a very significant threat in itself. But the interesting point in the context of your question and smoking is that um, some years after their initial findings, um, Dahl and Pito did another study, and they showed that uh, although uh, any smoking, even smoking one cigarette, but certainly smoking for a prolonged period of time, and smoke, certainly smoking heavily for a prolonged period of time, does huge amount of damage to your genome, and in particular to the DNA in your lungs, they showed very convincingly that if you stopped smoking, you stopped causing the damage, and even to some extent, cells would repair themselves. So this issue of what can we do to prevent ourselves getting cancers comes back really to uh, how we treat our own bodies. So smoking's one thing. Another thing that we can do is to limit the amount of red meat that we eat doesn't necessarily mean giving it up altogether, but there are very convincing uh, studies showing an association between um, red meat consumption uh, and bowel cancer in particular. So limit the amount of red meat that you eat. We've touched already on obesity and uh, excess consumption of sugar is a critical component in driving the obesity epidemic, which is now um, has now reached huge proportions across the developed world, and in particular in the USA. The estimate is that each US citizen, on average that is, consumes more than twice the World Health Organization recommendation for sugar consumption on a daily basis. And the advice always boils down to eat a sensible diet, exercise to a reasonable extent regularly and generally look after your health. And if you do that, you will do as much as you can to minimize getting cancer.
Well, I'm well aware that cancer is not the you know, ch- cheeriest of subjects to talk about, but it's a it's a topic that touches just about every. I don't know anybody who hasn't had a friend or family member get cancer. My mother died of cancer. She died very young from cancer. It's affected our family certainly, and I think it affects everyone's family. And it's important to understand what's going on in the fight against cancer and how it all works. Robin Hescath has been my guest. He is one of the world's leading experts on cancer. He's a member of the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Cambridge. And the name of his book is Understanding Cancer. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for coming on and explaining it all. Thanks very much, Mike. You've probably heard all the safe driving advice you could ever want to hear, but here's some you may not have heard, and that is drive like a race car driver. Not speed-wise. We're not talking about going as fast as a race car driver. This is about the position of your seat. Edmunds.com test drivers are required to go to high-performance driving school each year, and they say that in order to get race car driver control, You should move your seat close enough to the steering wheel so that your wrists rest on top of the wheel with your arms outstretched while your back is up against the back of the seat. This reduces arm fatigue and your arms will be positioned for last-minute evasive maneuvers. Here are a few more tips. Keep your hands at 9 and 3 o'clock on the wheel, not at 10 and 2, and stay in the center lane. You have more escape routes from there. And that is something you should know. A simple thing you can do to show your support for this podcast is to share something you should know with someone you know and ask them to give it a listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.